Hello and welcome to the first episode of Demystifying Politics. This podcast will allow um, us to break down the topics of the week and explain them in more simple terms for young people getting interested in politics. Um, this It'll also give you tips on how you can get involved in your local politics and really just help you um, access it and um, access politics because we believe that everyone should be able to have a say no matter their age. Yeah, and so the topics we're going to talk about today, um, the three topics in the news, um, we'll talk about the Suez Canal crisis, what it is, what's happening there. We'll talk about the policing bill, why there's been so many violent protests, what was the big deal about it. Um, and lastly, um, um, we'll talk about shootings that have been... yeah, the shootings in America that have been happening and gun reform in America and why um, what's been going on there. So yeah, um, yeah let's start off with the Suez Canal. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Nathan, well, do you, do you want to start us off? Okay, so earlier this week, many of you would have heard that a boat got stuck going down the Suez Canal. So it was actually strong winds led to the driver, uh, the captain being unable to steer the boat forwards, and therefore it's lodged inside of the Suez Canal. So why is this so significant? Well, about 12% of all global trade goes through the Suez Canal, and it's vital in terms of reducing the cost of travel between Asia and Europe, because otherwise you have to go all the way around the Cape of Good Hope at the South, in South Africa. So this is very important in terms of global trade. Exactly. Um, also, there's just some facts for you guys before we break it down. According to data from Lloyd's List, the blockage is holding up an estimated 9.6 to 7 billion pounds of good deeds day, which is about 400 million uh, dollars an hour and that Egypt is losing about 40 million dollars in revenue every day that the canal is closed so basically um, exa- exactly as Nathan explained the reason this canal is so significant is because it provides if you just see if you think about the map of the world it, it, it provides an easy access route through Africa and into Europe as opposed to going as you talked about the Cape, Cape of Good Hope down and through South Africa which takes takes a lot more time so yeah um uh, and I actually thought this was very interesting because to me, um, it, it's why it, it signals to me that actually that our supply chains, i.e., the you know supply chains are basically um, the things that um, provide you the products you see in your in in, in your everyday supermarket. So strawberries, um, drinks, um, bananas, whatnot—they all come through some sort of supply chains, and um, and that is obviously in the news because of PPE and COVID. So it shows how fragile our supply chains actually are, and our goods and trading services, and actually that you know free trade isn't as um, as invincible as as as, as people think. So it's it's an interesting. It's it, it's actually quite interesting. If you look at it on the surface, obviously it's a very funny story to most people, especially people on Twitter that oh look. Um, a boat getting stuck is just halted global trade. But actually, if you look deeper, there's more like meaning, meaningful consequences about this. Like it talks about it, how uh, secure is free trade, how secure are supply chains. Could this say, you know, say something that happened more serious, like a complete blockage of the Suez Canal? Um, could could that mean that goods would take much longer? Like how secure is free trade? 
I think this whole episode has really demonstrated to us that countries need to be moving more towards self-sufficiency. I'm not saying we can't import things from other countries because obviously if you're in Britain, there are some fruits that just don't grow here and there's some things we just need to import. But we need to stop believing that we can just trade, we can just trade our way into prosperity. We do need to build things here. And that's why I think that measures that sort of abandon the manufacturing movement here in the country are so detrimental because what if something, what if, yeah, things like these happen. This happened. Exactly. And just to um, explain to those who don't quite understand. So basically when, when we talk about free trade, so in the past, so for, for I would say the majority of human history, um, uh, uh, countries have relied on self-sufficiency as Nathan said, i.e. basically you create your own goods and you sell it in your own country. In the 1800s, when Adam Smith came out with his book on uh, intellectual book of capitals, on capitalism, um, and uh, the ideas of free trade began to come in, and that has probably dominated economic thought for the last, I would say, since the 1800s to, to now, that free trade is unquestionably a good thing. Now, what free trade means, basically, is that, um, say, another country is really good at producing pineapples or a wine or cars like Germany or France or whatever, you will buy the goods from France, right? As um, Or Germany or whatever, um, as opposed to creating it in your own country. So that means, yes, you will get cheaper goods and that is better for consumers um, because obviously if something's made cheaper in another country, it's better for you because the prices are lower. But it also means that traditional manufacturing jobs that were in your own country, i.e. building plants, sorry, building cars, building um good building you know whatever those jobs are taken away and it was exactly what nathan alluded to that you know perhaps this episode means that we start looking at self-sufficiency a bit more yeah so free trade sort of thought really emerged re-emerged in britain in britain and the world in the 19 late 1970s early 1980s with the thatcher reagan neoliberalism revolution and it's probably one of the more popular parts because obviously Thatcher popularizing austerity and crushing unions has been very unpopular. But free trade has been popular, uh, which is why Clinton started NAFTA, which is the North American Free Trade Agreement, which created a free trade zone between the US, Mexico and Canada. Then obviously within the EU, one of the world's largest blocs, you have free trade within those countries. That was very controversial when the UK decided to leave that. So I, I'm actually curious as to how public opinion of free trade will change after this, these, these events. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think at, at this event, um, well, I, I'm not sure how much, how many people will sway, but I think what it, what it will show is that, um, you know, free trade isn't invincible. Now with the public, I think it'll take, um, I think there have been pushback on, on free trade. Now, if you see Trump with ran a, anti-free trade well, probably the first right winger to do so in you know at least a century like uh right you know a right wing candidate running against free trade is almost unheard of then you had bernie sanders in the u.s as well running on on terms of trade obviously in other things definitely not but on trade virtually the same platform anti-nafta anti-free trade um and much of the democratic parties now um apart from maybe biden and some very other and like obama and a few others the majority of the parties now 
um, I would say anti, more more protectionist than before. So yeah, I think that the free trade pushback is is is, is already happened, and this can just further exacerbate it. Perhaps um, my personal view on free trade is that I think it is a good thing, but I just think we we I think it, it should be unbridled. Like I I think yes, some a modicum of self sufficiency is is necessary, and I also think that what we need to do is a better job of helping out those people who've lost their jobs. So in the north. After Thatcher introduced her free trade policy, oh, uh, they were just left to um, they were just left to dry. Whereas what she could have done is, uh, you know, invested heavily in the north, invested in social services, invested in infrastructure to try and help those those very people out. Um, we also need to look at environmental concerns, trade union concerns, and have all these people at the table, as opposed to I think at the moment when it comes to free trade, it's just a group of. It's just the government of that country, a few businessmen deciding free trades. I, I, I don't think that's the way to go. Yeah, so it's actually very interesting that you brought up, brought up the example of Bernie Sanders and the Democrats. Uh, a while ago, I was looking at Elizabeth Warren's platform for when she was running for president. And with a few exceptions, her speech, her, her opening speech on trade uh, could be mistaken for Donald Trump's. She th- talks about things like Trade is here to benefit American workers and American families, which are obviously things that propelled Trump into uh, winning in places like West Virginia, Michigan, um, back in 2016, obviously, Ohio. Uh, Yeah, so across the political spectrum, there's a pushback against this. Uh, What other, Dev, what other political impacts do you think the Suez Canal will have? Yeah, I I think apart from, um, um, you know, further... uh, you know, leading to people mistrusting free trade more. I think it um it it also um it, it's more of a, a look at globalization as a whole. So obviously, what when we talk about globalization, um, what we we mean is that over the past I would say 40, 50 years, we've had a period known as globalization where the world become more interconnected, more um together, um you know more transparent. We are more interlocked with the other net than than ever. Um, uh, in terms of immigration, in terms of intelligence sharing, in terms of goods, in terms of everything, basically. And what I think is that um, th- this episode shows is is it, all it's going to do is um, just, it just all it does is highlight um, the f- the failures of globalization. So I'm I'm not going to uh, okay. Just just before I continue, I'm going to make it myself clear. I am pro globalization. I think generally it's a good thing that the world is more interconnected. But I'm not also not so naive as to not see the problems with it. So I think that you know there have been issues with with immigrants assimilating. I, and I know I'm an immigrant myself. Like my parents were immigrants. So I'm not saying this as a place of out of a place of hatred. What I'm saying is that you know we need to make sh- we need to have a better we need to do a better job of making sure immigrants assimilate into the into the UK. We can't have a situation okay where you're coming into the UK and then there's a lot of the time it's like segregation almost in some of these towns like where there's like an Indian part of the town, there's a white part of the town, there's a Chinese part of the town. Like we can't have that in in, in Britain. I think um, I know this is a pretty controversial thing when Boris Johnson or Nigel Farage, one of them said that like you know, in order to come to England, you should learn English. And that was pretty controversial at the time. I didn't think that was particularly controversial. I think you should learn English um, when you come when you come to the UK, only so you can better assimilate. Not because I just think immigrants are all dumb and dirty and going to ruin the country. I just think that it, it just, if you learn English, it'll just be better for you to um, assimilate. So what I'm saying as a whole, therefore, is that 
the political impacts of the Swiss Canal crisis. Well, okay, on the surface, everyone's going to laugh, right? Oh, look at like this boat just stopped global trade. Actually, if you look deeper, it has implications for free trade, for globalization, and and you can see like the deeper trends behind it. Yeah, I very much agree with your points about assimilation and immigration. Uh, would you want to move on to the next topic? Yeah, I think yeah, I think yeah, I think we should. So yeah, that was that was good. Okay, so we'll talk about the next topic. So the, let me just introduce it. So the policing bill. So that's been on the news, I'd say, for a couple of weeks now. And then you had that those violent protests in Bristol last night. Um, so okay, let's. What is the the policing bill? So. In response, um, so obviously let's let's look at Genesis one. So Sarah Everard, this woman was um, abducted. She was on her way walking home. She she, she was abducted by a Met police officer, who then um, proceeded to murder her. There may have been. I'm, I'm not sure if this is confirmed yet. So I, I, there may have allegedly been some sort of sexual assault. It, 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 meanwhile, or may have just been a murder. I, um, again, I I don't know. Um, so I, I can't comment, um, but yeah, and then that uh, sparked a conversation about women's safety. Now, um, amidst that, the government's, um, the Conservative government saw an opportunity to push through a bill, which they'd been waiting for for a long time. So the government had always, uh, the Conservative Party had always been looking for an opportunity in which to clamp down on some of the more extreme protests, which we've been seeing. So in 2019, we've seen extension rebellion basically halt london to a grind still and at the time pretty patel and boris johnson and what and Theresa may and whatnot they'd all you know been quite angry that they couldn't do more to stop it so they saw this as the perfect opportunity to um to to go through with it then of course you had the vigil for sarah everard where the police came in and it was in clapham i think um the police came in they took people away it was generally pretty rash and un- unnecessary from the from the police themselves and it led to a backlash and people realize, people saying, you know what, at this time, we shouldn't be giving more power um, to the police. So what does the bill actually do? So uh, there's, there's a good BBC article I saw on this. Uh, probably does a better job than me. I'll just uh, read it. So basically what it'll, um, what it'll do is, so police chiefs will be able to put more conditions on static protests. They'll be able to impose and start a finish time, set noise limits, and apply these rules to a demonstration by just one person. Um, they, they will also become, it'll also, this is one of the more controversial parts, it'll also become a crime to fail to follow restrictions the protesters ought to have known about, even if they've not received a direct order from an officer. At present, police need to prove protesters knew they had been told to move on before they can be said to have broken the law. This proposed law includes an offence of intentionally or recklessly causing public nuisance. So basically what they're saying is that um, police can now arrest you for for breaking a law you ought to have known about, whereas before they had to have told you that you you shouldn't be doing this before. So, and then there's there's other parts of the bill, um, less known, but that's just basically more just, you know, um, typical conservative things. So changing sentencing rules so that serious criminals spend more time in jail. Uh, judges will be allowed to consider jailing child murders for their entire lives. Maximum sentences for low-level assaults against emergency service workers doubled to two years. On terrorism, the bill, bill creates powers to more closely monitor offenders released from prison. Community centers for less serious crimes to un- address underlying problems in offenders' lives. Changes to sexual offenses laws to, to attack abusive adults in position of trust, just sports coaches or religious figures. So yeah, 
the bill as a whole is, if we look away from the specifics, is basically trying to um, I clamp down, probably be a good word, um, on, on peaceful protest and basically make it slightly harder uh, to peacefully protest. And that has caused some controversy. Nathan, do you want to talk some more? Uh, so there are obviously some very uncontroversial parts of the bill. So there, one of the parts of the bill stipulated that the government is ordering an investigation into the sort of weapons that are used in homicides. Obviously, they want to increase sentencing for homicides which for children, which might be controversial to some, but I don't think is really what's driving these protests in Bristol, for example. Now, the most controversial part of the bill, part three and four, public order and unauthorized encampments. So what this does is, uh, as you said, it allows, it amends police powers so that police can impose conditions on protests that are noisy enough to cause, in their words, intimidation or harassment or serious unease, alarm or distress. So we have this tradition in British law where we use words that are very vague and can be, be sort of interpreted either way. For example, who gets to decide what's a nuisance, who gets to decide what's annoying, uh, which will, will definitely cause some controversy in the coming months when people are eventually arrested under these laws. Yep. And another part is clause, clauses 57 and 58 uh, expand the controlled area around Parliament where certain protest activities are prohibited. So there's a zone around Parliament where certain protest activities cannot happen. And I think that is counterintuitive to the idea of protest. Surely, if you're protesting, you're usually protesting the government, you're usually calling on the government to either stop doing something or to start doing something. So I think it's kind of hypocritical that the government say uh, protests should not harm everyday people doing their li living their everyday lives, yet they've created a zone around their house, Parliament, where protests cannot happen. If anything, protests should be around Parliament and maybe should not be around uh, more residential or more commercial areas. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with um, with what you just said. I think the government kind of um, messed this part up a, a little bit on their part because um, as we see, okay, so just to explain to some who might not know, generally the Conservative Party generally pushes for more tough um, sentences for those who are accused of a crime. That is generally the way it goes. And then Labour generally pushes for more rehabilitation programmes. Um, so not necessarily lesser sentences, but they, they don't really actively push for tougher sentences. So uh, I think that, so the government, the Conservative Party is always looking for an opportunity to oppose a put tougher sentences. So I think with the Sarah Everard thing, when it happened, and we, we later on in a different episode, we can talk about women's safety and, and, and whatnot. Um, they, there they had an opportunity to, to basically push for more, and which would have gained wide support, probably even for, from, from most Labour Party people, for tougher sentences for criminals um, accused of violence against women. And then probably at the same time, they could have slipped in some of the more other stuff like tougher sentences for homicides, child murderers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, but because in that bill, they decided to do protests and tougher sentences at the same time. And then at the same time, you saw those scenes in Clapham where police were clearly you know, unnecessarily um, uh, using unnecessary use of force. Then you had what ended up happening, which is this massive kill the bill protests everywhere, um, anarchy in the streets of Bristol, um, and exactly what you're seeing, a massive pushback um, from, from, from more parts. Yeah, I agree. I don't think this is a very good political move. I, 
I do not think that this current government has the political acumen to really, even if they wanted to achieve something that was very, they could they could say something like the sky is blue. They probably wouldn't be able to get that through without causing some controversy because I don't think this government has the political acumen or experience to really achieve their aims. Uh, you can say what you want about someone like Farage, but he has accomplished everything that he has set out to accomplish. And that's without even holding a position as an MP for an extended period of time. He's pretty much been on the fringe for his entire 20-year career and he still achieved his goal of getting Britain out of the European Union. Whereas Boris Johnson, who won a landslide election victory, uh, supposedly that's supposed to make things easier. It hasn't. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I think you're, I think you're totally right. Um, um, with and, and that I think that that what that'll do is just anger the conservative base more because you're already seeing some parts of the conservative base. You're seeing with especially with some backbench MPs already getting a bit fed up with um, so much COVID restriction laws. Um, and I think this will this will just anger the anger the base more that hey, we came out, we turned out, we gave you eighty seats, um, but. You're not even doing what what you promised to do, so yeah, I think that that's that's one part. That's that's the actual bill itself. I think another part we can discuss is also the the violent what you saw like the violence in Bristol, the violence you saw. Um, I can't remember. There's, there's another place where there was some pretty violent protests, but generally, I think it was last night. There was some pretty pretty horrific scenes in Bristol, and you know where does uh, where does how at what point does you know, at one point, can you finally protest no matter what the cause is? So, you know, and does that also mean then the government, you know, it's the momentum shifts to the government side that, there's, that, you know, the scenes of last night give the government reason to be like, yo, hey, look, look at this, look at all these like anarchist extremist, you know, communists um, raging about in the streets of Bristol, um, setting fire to things and trying to kill policemen. Look, that's, you know, look, look at them. Look, there's, you know, we actually need this bill um, uh, to happen. And I think the problem with these protests is, is it's just shifting. It's giving the government the momentum that it, that it sorely needs. Yeah, I'm also interested in how this will... In fact, I don't think this will really affect public opinion of or the electability of the Conservative Party, because who are the people that are mainly protesting this? Young people. What is famously known about young people in politics, they don't vote. So Extinction Rebellion, Black Lives Matter, uh, now the Sarah Everard sort of movement, they're get, getting a lot of media attention, getting a lot of attention on social media. But will it come to fruition in 2024? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think I, th- I actually agree with that. And I think that's um, just to divulge just for a second before we move on to the the last bit of my news that's where you see Keir Starmer moving uh that's why you can perhaps in that light see Keir Starmer some of Keir Starmer's moves that why is he moving towards now trying to pick up middle class liberal democrat um sort of remainer conservative votes in London and kind of not abandon the north but not like actively try to to win it back which is because that Jeremy Corbyn tried to get a working class coalition from the north and young people and in 2017, it nearly worked. And 2019, it didn't work because of Brexit. And so the youth earthquake that we were expecting two elections in a row didn't quite come. We saw 2017 was more the North that really gave Jeremy Corbyn his um, 
not victory, but not a loss either. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah. So do you have any anything more to say on this topic before we move on to um, the gun violence? No, I'm just interested to see whether they proceed with the bill, whether they amend it or whether they just push through because yeah, it seems I, every single week that there's something controversial that happens with a member of the cabinet. Obviously this week, uh, Priti Patel has just been exposed, I guess, for her liberal spending of public money. Yeah, I, I think that with 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 pretty uh i think with i think they they will be able to push it through through the house of commons for sure the the bit where they might get a bit of trouble is in the house of lords um but the house of lords doesn't have that much power anyway so if they really wanted to go for it um they could get it through i reckon but i there's so much pressure now um that i i i, I think boris johnson so you can already see he's so reactive to public pressure that he, he more than likely U-turn. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to um, the last bit of news. So um, this is about the gun shootings in America. So we've had in America, if you've not heard, there was one shooting um, in Bo- in Colorado, Boulder, Colorado, I think, where a gunman went into a supermarket and just killed dozens of people. And then there was another shooting. I'm not sure which state. Uh, it was in Georgia. I think yeah, Georgia, yeah. I think it was Georgia. But he basically a gunman went to six or seven beauty parlors, a bunch of beauty parlors, killed people, and they and a lot of them were Asian American women. So the so the the Asian the Georgia Asian American shooting that sparked a conversation about anti-Asian hate that's come out of COVID-19 generally and sort of that you know that that issue. And then all the Colorado, that was just a more of a just a horrific shooting again. And I think that's merged to gen- generally again another gun control debate in the U.S. That we all know how this at this point. Even someone I'm I'm like 15, and even I know how this goes now. Um, the shooting happens. Um, the NRA says, you know, uh, you know, prayers and blessings or whatever their thing thoughts and prayers. The Democratic Party says now's the time for gun reform. There's a bit of pressure for like one or two weeks. They, they may be like once in every six times if it's a really bad shooting, try some something that in, some legislation fails and then we will go back to our merry lives. No, no worrying about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, Nathan, what do you think about it? So it's also very interesting to see what kind of political debates came out of each shooting. Uh, it's very unfortunate that we have to talk about the political impacts when so many people have unfortunately lost their lives, but that's that's how that's how that's how these things works. When deaths are the results of political policy, you have to talk about political actors. So with the Georgia shooting, I noticed there wasn't much debate around the actual guns used themselves. So there definitely was some, but it tended to resolve around uh, anti-Asian hate, um, anti-racism, that sort of vein. However, I noticed with the Colorado shooting, uh, no respect was given to that. And it was immediately Biden came out and said, we need to ban assault weapons. We can ban assault weapons. And I thought that was very interesting uh, to see. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. I think um, because the Boulder, Colorado shooting happened, it was, I think it was in the same week, I'm pretty sure, but it happened slightly, um, slightly later. 
um, that meant that that then it, the, the the national debate in the U.S. at least shifted towards um, towards more like uh, gun control um, esque esque things. So exactly. So in the U.S., um, for those that don't know, they basically have something called the Second Amendment. So in the in the, in the U.S., they have a constitution which we don't have. Um, which basically guarantees certain rights to every citizen of the U.S., regardless of their race, creed, religion, color, whatever. Although historically, it's obviously not been not been true. Um, um, so the First Amendment gives people rights to, um, to freedom speech, speech, freedom of religion, yeah. freedom, freedom of assembly, assembly protest. Or, exactly right. protest. All the great things that one of the most revolutionary things I think written by government. Second. Um, was um, the right to own a gun, um, and I think third is like something about like British about like something the military not being able to like being yeah. Own. Some of it's definitely anachronistic. Some of it is very yeah, specific some, to the uh, yeah. to the late eighteenth century, which yeah, is when the Bill yeah. of Rights is written. Uh, yeah, that, the third moment about no British soldiers and you don't have to keep a soldier in your home. Yeah, exactly, it, it, it's a really weird one. That one, uh, that's that that one doesn't come up too often in in U.S. public debate. The ones that uh, the, the the important ones about the first, the second, and there's a bit of rights. Then there's about the Thirteenth Amendment, which I think well, Thirteenth or Fourteenth. One of them was I think it was Thirteenth was slavery. Thirteenth um, Amendment abolished slavery. Um, the Nineteenth Amendment gave the women the right to vote. Twenty first was like um, banned prohibition, repealed repealed prohibition, and then the rest are just sort of like weird ones about like congressional term limits and Senate. And, all types of things. So, yeah. So, because in the US they have um, a constitutional right to own a gun, what they have is it. What it means that basically is that every time it, it's harder to restrict the supply of guns. So, generally, um, the more guns you have, the more mass shootings you're gonna have. That's just that's just how it works. So, basically, in the US, because they have an inordinate amount of guns, because it's just culturally and historically just you know, seen as significant to, to U.S. history, they have loads of guns, which means that if someone's crazy in the in the U.K., if someone's crazy because the, there's not guns are not very available, they'll I don't know, they'll take a knife and they'll try and kill maybe one or two people, but they won't have as big a reach as if you take like, an AR-14 and go to your local supermarket. Um, and basically, what the Democrat so the Democratic Party generally um, proposes gun gun control. Um, uh, the fr- I think I would say fringe parts of it. I, I wouldn't necessarily say mainstream parts of it. Fringe parts of it um, propose gun ab- abolition, but that would never, never, ever happen in the US. Yeah, Some that would part- be too controversial to get through. Yeah, impossible. Um, then there's other parts which sort of talk about gun buybacks, but generally the most basic bread and butter US democratic policy is universal background checks, um, AR assault rifle ban. Uh, high capacity magazine bans and uh, mental Bump health records. Uh, yeah, exactly. Domestic violence. So all 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 those things. Um, and yeah, I mean, Nathan, do you have anything to say about? Uh, so I want to talk about the relationship between the number of guns a society has and the number of homicide deaths it has. Because I think we often focus about the focus on the number of mass shootings, things, but I don't think that's very helpful because if people are aren't dying by mass shootings but they're dying by other ways but they're being killed by other ways i don't think it's a very useful conversation to have 
And while it is true the US has an abnormally high rate of homicides, considering it's a developed country, I, I'm skeptical as to whether guns are the issue. So we can look at uh, countries with the most gun with countries that have the most guns, and Serbia actually comes in second at around seventy guns per one hundred people. The US is way ahead, about one hundred and thirty guns per hundred people. But Serbia, I think, is very interesting. Serbia has quite a low homicide rate, very comparable to France, the UK, Germany, uh, but but it has loads of guns. So I think there are definitely cultural issues that need to be dealt with before we just do a blanket ban or restriction on the type of guns that can be owned. Yeah, I think what, what, what's, what's interesting about America um, and, and particularly I think Democrats and Republicans, so I think Democrats at times are a bit naive. They say, oh, just, 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 just do the five things we say, um, universal background checks, red flag, et cetera, et cetera. And all the gun and we'll become every developed country in, in the world. We'll never have mass shootings again. That is just that is just wrong. Okay. So yes, I agree with don't don't get me wrong, I agree with those proposals, but I I also know that that won't make as big a dent as they hope it would. They will probably cut say 10 or 15,000 deaths than the US has gone homicide, which is a lot. That's 15,000 lives saved, but I it won't make as narrow a dent as you do in order to um to, if you really want to make a dent. So I think if you wanted to make a dent, there's two ways you could go about it. Gun buyback schemes, which is what Australia did, which is what New Zealand does, the UK, whatever. But because of the US and their culture, because of the Second Amendment, because generally culture, cultural reasons, gun buybacks would never happen because you're, what you're essentially doing is taking taking away guns from citizens, which is their basically their biggest fear. That's the NRA. That's their number one like fear-mongering attack. We're like, oh, they're going to take away your guns. So I don't think a buyback. A buyback, so either you do a buyback so you take away the pool of guns and therefore artificially depress the amount of mass shootings, or you could actually do, you could, you know, you could talk about cultural mental health um, issues, stuff like that. So actually this is where NRA aren't completely wrong. Um, people make fun of them for always saying, talking about mental health, but they're not wrong, right? Mental health is the reason mass shootings happen. So the U S doesn't have universal health care. Of course, the U S doesn't have, um, you know, mental therapist sessions aren't free, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore, because of the lack of mental health infrastructure for people, a lot of people, loads of more people fall to slip through the cracks. Whereas in a more developed country, you have this social safety net of, you have your free healthcare, you have your therapist, your GP will, you know, make you a therapist. And so you're able, better able to be treated. Whereas in the US, because it's, you know, there's a lot of gaps in the system, more people fall through, therefore more people are likely to take up guns and, and do the horrific things you see. Yeah, I do think how, yeah, I do think it's not a great look on the part of the Republicans to propose sort of no public health care policy and then turn around and say gun shootings are the result of mental health problems. Uh, you could probably gain a lot of political capital by proposing maybe not even universal health care, but a definitely a way of subsidizing uh, public health care uh, in an effort to reduce gun problems yeah yeah exactly i think um um both sides talk about half the issue and of course as for normal they don't quite get the full picture and it's not always the case but i think especially in this case it's true so the, the democrats talk all about gun control red flag laws universal background checks which are half half the problem and all the republicans talk about and they talk about this in a sort of superficial way they never really as you say proposed genuine policies that would affect this but generally they will talk about mental health and um 
or all that. Whereas if you had a combination of that and you had effective policies, which which genuinely targeted it, you say, you, okay, we'll have we'll, we'll have red flag rules, we'll have universal background checks, we'll, tr- we'll we'll try and make it harder at least for those who have mental health issues to get guns. But then at the same time, pair that with um, uh, mental health legislation, better you know is uh, better funding for infrastructure of, of infrastructure, mental health infrastructure, therapists, sessions, etc. etc. Et subsidizations then you could really get an effective hold on America's gun control problem without having to restrict the supply of guns, which I think in America is virtually impossible. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So that's, that's the, um, that's, that's the, that's the news item of the week. Um, did you, Nathan, do you want to talk about um, the speed of vaccinations for a bit, just towards the end? Oh, yeah, definitely. So when the first vaccinations were happening, maybe two months ago, there was a lot of talk about Britain is way ahead of Europe, way ahead of the rest of the world. But I don't think that's true anymore. So uh, I'm on the government website right now. And Britain has delivered about 30 million vaccinations. That sounds great. Half of the population, more than half of the adult population vaccinated. Great. But they're not telling you that's just the number of people who have had one dose of the vaccine. And as we know, one dose of the vaccine isn't fully effective. So if we really want to, a better way of measuring it would be the number of people who are fully vaccinated. And when you look at it like that, uh, it's much, much lower. Currently, only about 5% of the population have been fully vaccinated, which is far behind a lot of the countries that we are supposedly doing way better than, uh, for example, the US, where they've got 15 close to 15% of their population. Yeah, I, I think what's, what's also, I think the reason behind that is what the government has done. And I think this may come back to, 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 to so right now, I think they're, they're still um, uh, reaping the rewards from the, the vaccination program. You've splashed all over headlines, front pages. The, U, the UK is number one, we are the best, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the reason we're able to do these these vaccinations so quickly and effectively is because we're giving people only one dose and then you have to wait, what, 12 weeks for your second dose? So what's happening is, as opposed to doing two, because you obviously need two doses, they're going one, 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 one to everyone and then hoping that we'll give one, one to the rest. But if we do it that way, it means, yeah, we'll give everyone their first dose really quickly, but we won't act, as Nathan said, get to that second, that full immunity like other countries. So that so that sort of, I think it, 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 it it's, because of um, the government generally, like Boris Johnson likes that flashy um, newspaper headline, that flashy, um, uh, you know, that flashy bit of good PR saying the UK is number one. They've done a good job of vaccinations. They've done really well. And whereas the whole year they've been getting battered over um, generally the, the handling of the pandemic. But if it turns out, oh, later on in the year, we see other countries opening up because a lot of people have had second doses. But actually, the UK, we've not, not everyone's had the second dose. You know, it could start to, it could start to f- fall onto the government. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a problem when we get to early June, when we're expecting, what, maybe 90% or 80, 90% of the population to be vaccinated. But the number is actually closer to maybe 30%. And therefore, we have to delay reopening. I really hope this doesn't happen, but I'm not confident the government will achieve their. 21st of June uh, yeah. goal. Yeah, and, I'm not confident. 
And the real problem they've, they've done with that is they've given people a specific date. And while that's great, everyone's hoping for that day. Everyone's got it marked in their calendars. They're getting their parties ready. They're getting their dresses ready, et cetera, et cetera, to go clubbing on the 21st of June. It does mean that if that if or when, uh, to more accurately, they have to delay the reopening, they're really going to face face the blowback from the public. Uh, yes, and I have no idea how, but Boris Johnson has maintained a pretty pretty comfortable poll lead. I mean, he's he still he still has a negative approval rating, meaning there are more people that disapprove of him than approve of him. But considering that we've had more than more than a hundred thousand COVID deaths, I was really expecting this to be more. But currently, forty five percent of the public approve of him, and forty eight percent disapprove of him. If you look at social media or newspaper headlines, you would think that's a lot higher, but clearly not the case. Yeah, and I think, yeah, exactly. If you look at Twitter, you'd think Keir Starmer was like 40 points ahead, um, but that's Twitter's not the world. Um, and what you see from the Conservatives now, they've, started, they, they've really got this now 40%, this stubborn... And this is not usual for US for British politics. Unlike in the, in the US, where you see like stubborn voter base, like... Trump has about 30% of the country that's stubborn Trump. The Republican Party as a whole is about 45% of the country. The Democratic Party is about 47% of the country. And you've got like 6 or 7% of people who are disinterested, who often swing the election based on what they're feeling like. Um, so, and basically what, what is what means is we're starting to see that happening in the UK because the Conservatives haven't dipped below that, that, that 40% number. They, they've got a stubborn 40% of the, of, the, of the country that seems to be intent on voting for them come come rain or come shine because um when it was the worst of the pandemic we're having a hundred thousand deaths when they're getting battered uh, by most newspapers um you know they're they're, they're maintaining their approval re- um their approval rating and, and and the base almost in a trumpian style doesn't seem to care about policy right so you know in typical bases if you go against what you promise in your manifesto you lose popularity like k starmer has gone against wasn't like he's gone more harshly harsher on Jeremy Corbyn than many expected. And so his approval rating with, with the Labour base base has sort of gone down. But Boris Johnson is raising taxes. He's keeping restrictions. He's doing a lot of things that would normally enrage a conservative base. And he's not he's not getting a dent because he seems to have this ability to just hold on to high approval ratings. Yeah, I think I think what the cause of this is is that there's no real major right-wing party that's a challenge to Conservatives. The Conservatives are famously the most successful political party since in the history of the world because they maintained a constant seat at the table of one of the world's greatest democracies since about the late 19th century. And right now, uh, they have a nine-point lead ahead of Labour. A nine-point lead ahead of Labour. Uh, yeah. They're at 43, because of 34. Uh, then you've got Greens at seven. Lib Dems at five and the SNP at five. Yeah, uh, I, and I think we, uh, with the Labour Party, actually, there's more competition and that forces Labour to be slightly more ideological in ways um, because you've got the Labour Party, you've got the Green Party, you've got the SNP, um, whereas before the Labour, Labour would used to rule Scotland, Labour would rule the North, Labour basically ruled England. So there was basically the Labour the Conservatives, whereas now... In London and South, it has competition with Lib Dems and the Greens. 
in Scotland, it's now basically been wiped out by the SNP, which is another left-wing party, but just nationalist. Now in the North, you've seen this new Northern Independence Party, half joke, half real, that is springing up and getting a bit of momentum. So that might be a new party that's going to that's gonna punish Labour and, and split split the vote further up there. And it, the only... And you just don't see the equivalent in, in, in for the right on the Conservative Party. All you've really seen is sometimes every now and again, whenever Farage wants something to get done, he creates a party, puts some pressure on the Conservatives, and they budge, right? So Farage think, thought that Boris Johnson wasn't hard Brexit enough, forms um, the Brexit Party, fields some candidates, hurrah, Brexit happens. Um, so every time, but the problem with Farage is he doesn't, want it to be a permanent thing. He doesn't keep it in there. It's now called for Reform UK or whatever, but it's now just an irrelevant body, probably polling at 1% or 0%. Um, um, yeah, they're at 3%, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it, it doesn't have this constant hold. Therefore, the, press, the, the pressure is not constantly on the Conservatives. So now because the Re- Brexit Party, Reform UK, whatever, is now not really an entity, the Conservative Party can go back to what they're doing best uh, ditching their manifesto, raising taxes, keeping lockdown restrictions, doing things that conservatives would not be happy with. Um, and yeah, I think that that's exactly the point you were touching on. I really agree. Is that the end? Yeah, um, I think. Um, thank you, uh, guys, for tuning into our first episode. Uh, we'll film another one next week. You can get it on Spotify, YouTube. Instagram, wherever you, you want to do, please follow us at on Twitter or Instagram. Um, see you guys.